0: Okay, <clears throat> so.
1: Everyone, pay attention to Luke. He's everybody, pay to attention to
0: you. me, cause I'm very important. So uh, I am just watching everybody um, get out I their phone to- right now. Na- yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Okay.
1: okay. 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 Oh, oh, oh. Good enough. Okay. Um, just, just uh, turn off your phone. If you don't have a Bible, then uh, you can use your phone. It's, accept- it's acceptable. We are allowing that. So, uh, yeah, let's sing. All right, Luke. Thank you, Luke. Everyone get up for Luke. Okay. okay. And give a little clap for oh, Luke. Yeah. There we go. All right, let's get worship. <laughs> Even though when we're in our toughest days in our lives and we're having, like, it's just a bad day, we can always rely on God's love to change our minds and our hearts and the way we think about our day. And it's not a bad day. It's an amazing day because God loves me. He loves me. He chooses me to be his son or daughter in Christ. And we go out there and we share the love of Christ with everyone else and share the love that he gives us. last song, we are going to take offering, and I'm going to pray for that, and then we'll move into the last song, and then John will speak his message. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this night, Lord. I thank you for offering, Lord, as it is time for um, surrendering ourselves and um, showing the love that you gave us, Lord. And as this money goes out to the people um, who need it more than we do, I just pray that it gets them safely, Lord, and that they know that um, it's from you, Lord, and not from us. And your love is shared all around the world, Lord. In the name I pray, amen. Thank you. i This wonderful night, Lord. I just pray that tonight, as John speaks his message, Lord, um, that it sticks with us and that when we leave here, Lord, we don't just forget about it, Lord. We apply it to our lives and we live it out um, as you want us to do, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.
0: Tonight, we're going to talk about being angry at folks. Yeah, we're going to talk about being angry at folks. We're going to talk about uh, resentment. We're going to talk about bitterness. If anybody would like a dollar, I have one. Um, I totally just found that in my pocket, so that's pretty cool. So, huh? Yeah, right, right. So, um, all right, all right, all right. Let's right. Let's let's quiet down. Let's quiet down. So, um, this is something, this is a, a, a topic for me that uh, personally kind of hits home. Um, I can kind of be an angry guy. Uh, yeah, I... I have, a, I have a short fuse. I've had a short fuse since I was a kid. Um, do you guys, have you guys ever played Uno? That's like the one card game I think everybody's played, right? So um, when, I was, when I was younger, um, I used to throw straight-up temper tantrums if I lost a game at Uno. Like, you think you've seen a kid in a store cry about not getting gobstoppers? It, that kid can't touch the tantrum, tantrums that I had playing Uno. Um, I mean, I'm talking like I would freak out and, like, throw cards across the room. I would throw cards at my mom. I would throw cards at my brother. I would, like, flip plates if they were on the – I mean, I, I get mad um, when, it, when I didn't lose. But that's not the type of anger that we're talking about tonight. The type of anger that we're talking about – let me flip my hair real quick here. Um, the, the type of anger that we're going to talk about tonight is specifically personal anger or resentment geared toward another individual or another person. Um, I don't believe that there's a single person in this room that doesn't have any sort of anger or resentment toward a person. Um, and so my hope is that this topic, that this text in the Bible that Jesus speaks on, um, hits home for everybody. Uh, but before we get into that, just another uh, something to lighten the mood. So I got one more announcement. Um, next Wednesday is my son Leon's first birthday. Um, So make sure if you're here next Wednesday and you see Leon, make sure you say happy birthday because I promise you he will remember it for the rest of his life. Um, Yes, it is his first birthday. He's one years old, but I guarantee you he will remember it. Um, I said that to my mom on the phone and she thought it was the most ridiculous thing ever, but that's okay. So um, yeah, Leon's birthday is next week. Feel free to say um, high five to him. Hi, happy birthday. Say high five to him. Yes, that is exactly what I just said. Uh, say hello to him. Happy birthday. High five. Tell him he's got sweet red hair, whatever you want. Um, you can do that. So uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 21 through, I think, 26 tonight. Um, but before we get into the text, I want to talk about something specific. How many of you guys remember about a little over three years ago when Washington, about seven miles west of us got hit by a tornado, right? So when something traumatic happens, whatever it is, whatever's traumatic, I think we have this, this habit of like going back to when it happened and like hashing out exactly what happened and, and, and where, where we were at and what we were doing. I remember that I was, in, I was in service here at Crosspoint and everybody's like emergency alert on their phone went off at the exact same time and uh, within the next like Six minutes, everybody evacuated the church and went home. Uh, my wife, uh, she wasn't my wife at the time, my girlfriend, Sarah Sweeney and I, and a guy that I lived with named Emmerich all went to Sarah's parents' house, which is about two miles that way. And uh, something that was really interesting that happened, is I had an apartment in Washington at this time. I lived in this, like, sweet studio apartment that was about as big as, like, so if, I, if, if, if the front door is here, okay, The bathroom was here. Okay. The kitchen was here. The living room was here. And then you go back and it was about like this wide. So like that was the entire apartment, super small. Um, but one of the coolest things about this apartment was it had uh, a loft and this was like no normal loft. This was a fort. I mean, it was awesome. So this thing, like, I mean, super tiny apartment. It was like the size of a two-car garage, to kind of give you some sort of perspective of how big this apartment was. And then if you walked in the front door, the door to the bathroom was here, and there's this sweet, like, old-school, like, bunk bed-looking ladder that went up, and then there was a loft over the kitchen. And I kid you not, if I was to stand up in this loft, my back would be touching the ceiling if I was like this. So if I sat up in the middle of my bed, my head would scrape the roof of my my apartment, man. This thing was awesome. So, uh, but I had this apartment, and so... After the tornado hit, I had no idea, right? Nobody knew, like within the first 30 minutes after the storm, nobody knew what happened except for the people in Washington, right? Because their homes were devastated. They saw the tornado. They heard it. But, you know, for me, out in, you know, piddly little Eureka, I had no idea. You know, you can't see it. And um, my brother-in-law, Sarah's brother, ended up calling Sarah, and he was on his way home from Peoria. And on 24, looked and saw, like, Washington just completely devastated, right? Like, do you guys remember? I wanted to get pictures, but the pictures just don't do it justice. I think most of us remember that. And, um, I mean, it was horrible. And so, me, I'm like, dang, I live in Washington. (laughs) You know, like, I don't have renter's insurance. So, if my home is gone, like, all my stuff is gone, I ain't getting it back. And so, uh, we pile in my car. It was Sarah, Emmerich, and myself. And Emmerich, he's a buddy of mine, he was homeless at the time. I was letting him stay with me in a studio apartment. By the way, word to the wise, when you have a an apartment that's just one big room, bad idea for a roommate. You have like no privacy at all. Like the only privacy we would have is in the like two square feet of bathroom. was the only door in the whole house. So, um, But Emmerich and I, all of Emmerich's stuff, like all of his things were at my apartment. You know, he was homeless. He was staying with me. And all my stuff was there. And I, had, this was about a, a year and a half after I got out of drug and alcohol treatment. And so Um, I didn't have a ton of stuff either because when I went into that I was homeless and I went in with like clothes, a pillow and a blanket and that was it. So the little things that I had accumulated in that year and a half since I got out of treatment was it was kind of near and dear to me. You know, I had all of this free furniture. Um Nick Agnew, who's one of our leaders, gave me he remodeled his kitchen and gave me all of his kitchen supplies, like all of his utensils. I still have some of that stuff, but um, I would look at this furniture, and it meant a lot to me because well, you know when I was hurting and when I didn't have stuff, this was like evidence of God's grace, like physical evidence of God's grace that I could see every time I walked in my apartment. Like I couldn't argue God doesn't provide for me because look at all this free stuff He gave me. Um, and so, uh, and I mean like it was just, I had a sweet like 70s plaid couch. Like come on man, it was, it was cool. So uh, all all this stuff, you know, kind of freaking out about it. So we go to Washington. And you guys know where Monocle's Pizza is at in Washington? So, you know, down towards 24, there's, like, that hotel. Um, On that street, we couldn't even get into Washington because there were so many people trying to get in. So Sarah dropped me off, like, three miles away from my apartment, and Emmerich and I start walking through Washington. So we walk down the road, we pass Monocle's, and then we hit a left, and we start heading down Washington Street, like, past where the new Taco Bell and Old Golden Corral is, and just start, we're literally, like, there's no cars anywhere. We're walking down the middle of the road, um, because the police had blocked off all the streets. There was, like, street lights down. I mean, it was like a scene out of the movie. There was, like, semis tipped over. Um, the golf course was completely destroyed. Georgetown Apartments, if you guys even, they're not even there anymore. Um, Georgetown Apartments was completely leveled. And so we're, like, walking to my apartment. We get to my apartment. We see that it's fine. But the amount of destruction that happened on, on this small town The town was so destroyed that it didn't even look like Washington anymore, right? It was so destroyed that it didn't even look like Washington. But it's interesting if you go to Washington today, because the 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 community has been kind of restored, right? Like you can almost walk, you could almost walk through Washington and you would never know that a storm ravaged thousands of homes in the community. Now there's still evidence of it, right? The, 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 the community is not completely restored. You can see it in trees, right? You can see it in the, in the landscape. And there's, there's certain things that point to the damage that was once there. Why am I talking about this? Because I think that there is personally something beautiful about seeing broken things be restored. Right? Broken things be restored. I was sitting, out in fr- out a, I was sitting at my dentist one time, and this guy was telling me about this old school, like, 40s Coca-Cola truck that he had parked out front that was, like, rusty. He showed me a picture of it. The thing looked horrible. And I looked out, and it was, like, this brand-new, shiny, polished car. And it was beautiful. But there's this, there's this amazing thing. In there. I, I, I think all of us kind of get attached to things that we've seen broken that have been restored. And the reason why I, I, I want to go there tonight is our bitterness and our anger towards others is, if we're in Christ, is directly related to our identity as restored people. If you're a Christian in here, if you claim to follow Jesus, you've experienced the the restoration of the gospel. You've experienced the reconciliation of Jesus. And basically what reconciliation means is this, Connor, I'm mad at you and we're enemies. If we're going to be reconciled, that means we who were once enemies are now going to become friends. Does that make sense? Forgiveness happens in reconciliation, restoration happens in reconciliation, and that friendship, which used to be broken, right, is now completely restored. And that, that is very similar to our relationship with God. If you're a Christian in here, you have been reconciled with God. What does that mean? That means this, that at one point, once we were enemies with God, right? We talked about this a little bit last week. We were once enemies with God, and God, through the blood of Jesus, has brought us near, and we are no longer enemies of God. We're now sons and daughters, and God has restored that relationship completely. God has restored it completely in such a way, but there's still evidences of the destruction of sin at play in your life. Just like if you were to go into Washington, there's still evidence of the destruction that was once there. And so yes, we are completely restored in Christ, but uh, once we give our life to Christ, we begin this lifelong restoring process of God slowly chipping away at the sin of our hearts. And as God chips away at the sin of our hearts, we become more and more like Jesus. This is like basic core what it looks like to follow Jesus and what God is doing in the Christian as they live life in this world. Why am I talking about this? Here's why. Because since Jesus restored us completely, we must show this restoration to others. If Christ has fully restored us, right, if he's fully restored us, then we must show this restoration to others. We must show this restoration to others. Being restored completely allows us to reveal the restoration of the gospel in a world of destruction. Our restoration in Christ gives us an opportunity to show that restoration that the gospel offers to this destroyed and damaged world. And so, I'll raise this up a little bit. So, let's look at the text. Let's look at Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Would somebody want to read that for us? Hey, my computer fell asleep. That's helpful. Beautiful. There we go. Would somebody like to read that for us? All right, so sometimes when we look at big chunks, chunks of Scripture, right, we can read the whole thing, and then by the time we're done reading it, we can look back at it and be like, what in the world did I just read, right? Like, what is he talking about? And so let's break it down, right? Let's, let's look at this thing verse by verse. We'll take this, this big piece of pie, and we'll eat it one piece at a time, all right? And so the first section of this is this. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's verse 21. Now what is Jesus doing here? You remember how we've been, we've been kind of going through the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus gave this message as instructions to his disciples to, to encourage them to live a life that reflected him in this world. Jesus is not telling people this is what you need to do in order to be saved. Jesus is telling people who are already saved, this is how you reflect me to the world. And so what Jesus actually does, right, because this is back in the first century, the, old, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so the Bible... Right? consisted of just the Old Testament. That's it. And so Jesus' Bible at this time is the Old Testament. And what Jesus is doing, this begins six images, six illustrations. We talked about last week, we got to talk about how Christ came and fulfilled the law. Right? Do you guys remember that a little bit? We talked about that. Um, what it meant to fulfill the law and that Jesus completed the entirety of Scripture. All of the prophecies in the, in the, in the Scriptures point to Jesus. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. All the New Testament reflects on Jesus. All of the Bible points to a climax, and that is Christ. And in that way, Jesus fulfilled the law. And then what Jesus does here in six different sections, and we're going to go through these six sections over the next six weeks, starting tonight. He gives six different illustrations for how his fulfillment of the law impacts us in our daily living. Here's what I love about Jesus. He's a genius. Um, again, every week, what I hope, when you look at the text, is that you will see that Jesus is a boss. Like, he's amazing at teaching the Bible. Why? Because what he does is he takes these big picture ideas of the Bible and he breaks it down and shows us how they apply to our daily living. He takes something so simple like this, of you shall not murder, and he shows how it, this command is not just a command that says, I can't kill Jonah. Yes, would, would killing Jonah be wrong? Raise your hand if you think if I just killed Jonah right now, I'd be wrong. right. Okay, I think we can all agree on that. I think we can all agree on that. But sin, sin is not just a a matter of external behavior. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that sin is a matter of the heart. Sin is an effect and affects the inner being, our innermost self, the seat of all of our desires, our heart. Why is that important? Because the fact that I want to kill Jonah is the issue. Not killing Jonah. Killing Jonah is not the issue. It's bad, absolutely. But the deeper issue is why I want to, that I want to, and the hate and resentment coming from my heart. And my physical actions are just an overflow of the hate and resentment that I have in my heart. And that's what Jesus is going after here. So yes, he says in verse 21, murder is wrong. We can all like, raise our hand and say, yes, amen, murder is wrong. But he says this, but I say to you in verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who's angry with his brother. Now, that word angry is a very, very interesting word. In, 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 the, in the original Greek language, it's it's passive, which basically what, what that means is um, verbs are either active or passive, right? If a verb is active, it means that I am either commanded to do something or I am actively doing something, right? So an active form of becoming angry would be me lashing out at Connor. But this is passive, which is incredible because what that means is that this anger is happening to me. And it's this very interesting picture of how sin affects the inner person. Sin takes over us like a cancer. And not only do we lash out in anger, but this anger literally takes over us and resentment consumes us. Let me let me ask you something. Raise your hand if you've ever been bitter or resentful t- towards somebody. Raise your hand. Okay. So... If I, if I said to you that that bitterness consumed you, would that make sense to you? Would you say that you've experienced that in some way, shape, or form? It's consumed your thoughts. It's guided the way that you've acted toward people. You've kind of maybe given somebody a dirty look in the hallway or said something snarky to them or um, tried to egg on a fight or some sort of argument or s- just something, right? This bitterness takes over us and it consumes us. And Jesus says, this is the crazy thing. In the eyes of God, that bitterness and that resentment is equal to murder. Murder is not a bigger deal than resentment. In the eyes of God, me being angry and bitter toward Jonah is just as bad as me killing him. Now that's different from the way that we see things. But we don't see things with the heavenly perspective of a perfect, eternal God. And so... Resentment is a big deal. And I think this is something that we kind of ignore and brush aside. Um, There's there's a lot of family that I struggle with being bitter toward. And and God, as I studied this passage to talk about it with you, I mean, God is convicting me and just reminding me, John, this isn't something that you need to ignore and and brush aside. This is something that you need to address and you need to bring to me so that I can heal it and, and restore you and restore that area of your heart so that you're no longer bitter toward these people. And so since Jesus completely res- restores us, we must res- resist resentment towards other people. We must, we have to. If Jesus completely restores us, if you're a Christian in here, this is for you. You must resist this. You can't allow resentment to take over your heart. You have to, you have to keep Jesus as king, not, not allow resentment and bitterness to be king. You have to. You have to keep Jesus as king. You have to. The heart is sick. The heart is sick. And and, and God's place and God's role in our lives is to restore that which was broken in such a way that you couldn't even tell the degree of destruction that was there before God's healing took place. And here's the interesting thing about resentment. If you look at verse 22, it gives all these pictures of judgment. And the last one it says is that whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. And basically what that is is like if you insult somebody or if you want to insult somebody, if you, you call somebody stupid or you're an idiot, this isn't there's, there's not just worldly consequences for that. If, 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 if I was in a class with Nick and I said, Nick, you're an idiot, right? Like I'm not just going to get consequences from the teacher saying like, John, shut your mouth or go to the principal's office or get out of my classroom or whatever. There are eternal consequences for our actions, eternal consequences for our actions, which means this, when I die in a million years, in a million, a million years after I die, I'm going to be no closer to the end of bearing the weight of those consequences than I was when I started. It's not going to stop. This is a big deal. Jesus takes this very seriously. But Jesus doesn't just tell you, hey, you need to fix you. Jesus says, trust in me. I'm here to help. Let me change you because John can't fix himself. I can't fix myself. But Christ is the one who restores. Christ is the one who redeems. Christ is the one who forgives. And if you're in here and you've experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, you have no room to be bitter. If you are in Christ in here, you must resist the temptation to nurse resentment and harbor bitterness toward another person. You've received the complete restoration of the gospel. God has given you the very thing you need to resist this temptation. He's given you his spirit. The restoring power of that spirit is what allows you to walk free from the desire to hold people down with your anger. God has provided you with not just this power, to resist temptation and resist being resentful toward other people but he's given you the power to represent him toward other people. And so if you're in Christ in here and you're holding resentment over somebody that's how you're representing Jesus to that person. And so if I'm if I'm harboring bitterness toward my mother my mom doesn't see the forgiveness of the gospel. She sees a hypocrite who says he forgives, but then doesn't forgive anybody else. That's what my mom sees when I harbor bitterness against her, if I'm a Christian. Because basically what I'm saying, I'm saying I've received this great forgiveness, but I don't want to give it to anybody else. It's like if Luke was going to forgive me for owing him 10 bucks, and then I go and I get mad at Braden for owing me 10 cents. I've, been forgiven of a debt, but I'm going to hold Braden's debt over his head, even though I've been forgiven of mine. It's hypocrisy. Nobody likes a hypocrite. We all hate a hypocrite. And so if you're in Christ in here, you you, you have no room to hold resentment over somebody else. And God has given you the grace necessary for you to free other people from that, to truly forgive somebody. You have that power. You have it. I have it. But if you're not in Christ in here, you, you, you don't have that power. And so I would encourage you if, you, if you don't know Jesus, to talk to a leader, to talk to me, to talk to somebody in here, a friend that you know knows Christ. Because Christ is the one who gives us the means to not do this. Since Jesus completely restores us, we, we not only resist the temptation to be bitter toward other people, But we prioritize restoration with other people. What what do I mean by that? The inner workings of the gospel give us a desire to see wrong things restored, right? The reason why I do what I do is because I want to see the sin in, in, in this community restored. I want to see Jesus heal this community. I want to see families come to Christ. I want to see students come to Christ. I want to see teachers come to Christ. Like, I want to see amazing restoration happen for the sake of the gospel, for the furthering of the kingdom here in Eureka. That's why I do what I do. I want to see broken things be restored again. But the interesting thing, what Jesus calls us to here, is to not just see restoration in community, but to pursue and prioritize personal restoration in our own relationships with people. Because again, If we're in Christ, if we're following Jesus, we're representing Christ to these people, which means the same restoration we receive, we also give away. We also give it away. And pursuing reconciliation with with others is is, is greater than our church attendance. Check this out. Look Look at verse 23. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. This is how, back in the Old Testament, this is how people would actually worship God. They would would give sacrifices before God. They They would actually sacrifice animals in worship to God. And I know that that might sound confusing to you, and I don't have time to really talk about that and break down why people had to do that. But they had to sacrifice these animals at an altar to experience the forgiveness of God. It's why Jesus had to die. Every animal sacrifice was just a picture of the coming death of Jesus that was the ultimate sacrifice for all of us. And so the, Jesus is literally telling these guys, hey, if you, if you have an animal that you've killed and you want to go worship God and you remember that somebody in your life has something against you, literally put that animal down and immediately go reconcile with your brother. Immediately. Like this is a high priority on Jesus' list. Animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, big deal. Animal sacrifice in the New Testament, big deal, right? But here's something really interesting. Today, we don't have this because we have the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. We don't don't have to bring animals to an altar anymore. But something that we do do is we gather weekly, right? In worship to God, we gather weekly to worship God together. And so here's something very interesting. A lot of times what we, what we think is, well, if I attend church and if I read my Bible and if I pray and if I do all these things, then, and only then, once I do all these things, then God will love me. But what we see here is that what's more important to Jesus is that our reconciliation with others is happening. That we're pursuing relationships in our life and, and restoring those for the sake of the gospel. And that's a higher priority than our church attendance. And what I love about what Jesus does here is he he kind of flips the script on the disciples, right? He says, says, first, if you're angry with somebody, like he, he talks about our personal anger toward other people, right? And then he immediately in verse 23 flips it around and says, if somebody's angry with you, if you've wronged somebody, go restore that relationship. So not just holding us to this standard of, Man, we 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 need to not harbor bitterness against the people because we can be me focused, right? I can be like a me monster and be all about me and the people who have wronged me and the people who have upset me and the people who have let me down. But Jesus is not just talking about that person, he's talking about us restoring relationships with not just the people who've let me down or the people who let you down, but he's talking about our own sin against somebody else. If somebody has something against me, I need to go. And so this is a priority. This is a priority. It means something to Jesus. And not only that, but he he, he not only calls us to prioritize this restoration, he calls us to initiate it. How hard is that? Right? To not just not just see somebody that 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 I've wronged, right? Because if I if I wrong you, right, if I did something wrong to you, you'd expect me to say sorry, right? I need to be the first one to say sorry. If I wrong you, I need to initiate it, if I'm the one in the wrong. But Jesus goes a step further and says, if you've wronged me, I still need to initiate that. Why? Not because if I initiate it, Jesus will love me. No. But because of the love of Christ that I've received, I have such a desire to see restoration happen in my relationships that whether I've wronged you or you've wronged me, I'm going to initiate it because I want to see that happen. Thank you. I love you. Um, so, but I have such a desire to restore the relationships that are broken in my life that whether you've wronged me or I've wronged you, I'm going to restore it. I'm going to initiate it. It doesn't matter whether you've wronged me or I've wronged you because I've been so impacted by the forgiveness of the gospel by the forgiveness of Jesus, that I want every single person on the face of the earth to experience that too. Whether I've wronged them or whether they've wronged me, I'm gonna show them that forgiveness. Now let me ask you something. If you came over to my house and you stole $1,000 from me, right? Just, just I don't think any of you would do that. I hope that none of you would do this, right? But if you did that, if you can't, or even better, you stole my TV or my Xbox, right? You just like busted up in my window, Stole my Xbox. Now let me let me ask you this. What if I came to you and I knocked on your door and I said, Hey, why'd you steal my Xbox? And the first thing out of your mouth is, as you know, is gonna be, I didn't take your Xbox. I didn't do it, it wasn't me, right? But if you did, and I know it. What if I initiated restoring that relationship with you and that restoration was so important to me that I, I looked at you and I said, hey, keep the Xbox. Yeah. See, he's like, what? But I, I, Because I desire that relationship to be so restored that the material thing isn't what matters to me. The fact that you experience the forgiveness of the gospel is what matters to me. And so keep the Xbox. Matter of fact, I'm going to buy a game and we'll play it together. That's the power of the reconciliation of the gospel. God has made us and brought us near, called us sons when we were once enemies. You should be my enemy if you came into my house and took my stuff. You should be my enemy. But I have such a desire for restoration. I have such a desire for reconciliation that I'm going to pursue that forgiveness whether you want to or not. That's the power of the love of God. That's the power of the love of God. It is a a love that initiates. It is a love that goes first. Jesus went first. And he calls us if we're in Christ to go first as well. And so because Jesus completely restores us, we must pursue restoration. We must. We're not only called to not harbor bitterness and not kill people. We're not only called to prioritize and make restoration a big deal in our lives. But we're also called to initiate it. Whether we're the ones that made the mistake or you are. Whether I I did it or whether you did it. I initiate that. I go first. Look at verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. While you are going with him to court. Jesus kind of gives us a picture of like being in court. Right? The ultimate perspective of like being in trouble, we have court. And somebody's accusing me and they're suing me for something that I've done wrong. And Jesus says, come quickly to terms with them. What does he mean by that? He means come quickly. Which means we need, we need to not only initiate, but we, we need to be urgent in our initiation. Basically what Jesus is saying is that restoration is such a big deal in the heart of a Christian that they're not just going to initiate, they're going to make every effort to initiate as fast as they can. I'm not going to wait around for years to go to the guy who stole my Xbox. As soon as I find out that he took it, I'm going to go to him. And this is not something that is easy. Like, we don't nail this, right? It's so easy for me to let the cancer of bitterness consume my heart to where I want to just, like, call the cops on that dude and watch him suffer. But the power of the forgiveness and the restoration of the gospel is that God has softened my hard heart in such a way that I'm moved to move near my enemies and love them as if they're my son. That's the power of the forgiveness of the gospel. This urgency calls us to initiate. And for some reason, we have believed the lie that just because someone sinned against me or wronged me or hurt me, that they need to be the ones to initiate the apology and I won't forgive them until they say sorry. Listen, if God waited for us to say sorry, none of us would be saved. Period. If God just waited around like, well, I'm just going to wait for John to apologize me, and then I'll forgive him. That's not how it works. God initiates salvation. God draws us near. Jesus would have never died if God was waiting for us to apologize. Jesus going to the cross is God's pursuit of us when we were his enemies. God loved his enemies so much that he sent his own son to die on behalf of his enemies so his enemies could also become his sons. It's this amazing picture of love. A picture of love that makes us scratch our heads and be like, what in the world? That makes no sense. And it won't make any sense until you have genuinely experienced that in salvation. When you've re- fully received the love of Christ in such a way that you've been moved by the gospel to surrender to Christ. Our ability, our decision to give our life to Christ is only an expression that God has already pulled us in close. Our giving our life to Christ or our surrender to the gospel is not us saying, all right, God, you're over there. I'm going to come and be on your team. No, no, no. Our giving our life to Christ is that God has already called us to himself. And we're saying, this is where I stand. I'm on this team now. That's what baptism is. It's not hey, you get dunked and then you're saved. Baptism is this beautiful way to declare publicly, this is the team that I'm on. This is who I represent and it's Christ. And so if God waited around for us to say, sorry, Jesus would have never come. Jesus would have never died. Jesus would have never went to the cross. Jesus would have never resurrected. But because God pursues us, he goes first and he initiates. And because we've received and been restored in that, we're called to go first with others. We're called to go first with our relationships. Jesus also gives us a picture for what ignoring, this is is the thing that, that really checked me when I was studying this, that ignoring opportunities to pursue reconciliation can lead to irreversible consequences. We live in a fallen world, right? Everybody that I have beef with is not saved. Everybody that I have resentment toward is not saved. And so if I ignore the broken relationships that are in my life long enough, the consequences will be irreversible. Those people's hearts will be so hardened to me that they won't want to restore the relationship anymore. Restoration can't always happen. It, it, It can't always happen. If restoration was always possible, there would be no sin in the world. But because there is sin in the world, restoration is not always possible. But here's the deal. No one should ever be able to say that we haven't tried. No one. Period. And so Christ calls us to make every effort to pursue reconciliation, make every effort to live at peace with everyone. Not because if we make every effort, then we will truly live at peace with everyone. No, no, no. Jesus promises adversity and opposition against us because we follow him. Reconciliation will not always be possible. There will always be someone who will literally hate me for following Jesus, period. Period. But that person's gonna know that I love them and that I care for them and I'm gonna make every effort to pursue restoration in that relationship regardless. We should pursue reconciliation in such a way where no one could argue where we stand. There would be no evidence against us. This isn't always the case, right? We know this. This is why we rely in the power of Jesus. Because when we're fully in dependence on him, and his power, and his grace, and his love, that grace, that love, that forgiveness will flow out of us. But before it flows out of us, it's got to work in us. You can't ever expect God to do something through you if he hasn't done something in you. And so my hope for you is this. If you're you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, I want you to ask yourself two questions. The first one is this. Have I genuinely experienced the restoration of the gospel? Truly, not just heard it, not just said, yeah, I know what that is, or yeah, I believe in Jesus, but have you genuinely experienced the restoration of the gospel? Has your soul been restored? Has God come in and snatched you out of your sin, set you on the rock of his son, said, you are my son. Do you have a desire to follow Jesus? If you have a desire to follow Jesus, that's evidence that God is at work in your life. So have you genuinely experienced this? And if you have, then the next question is this. If you haven't, stay on that question because the second question is not possible. How can I genuinely show this same restoration that I've experienced to one other person, just one? I'm not gonna ask you to do it with everybody immediately. One person in your life right now that you are harboring bitterness and anger and resentment toward. Maybe they've made fun of you for being a Christian. Maybe they're, they stole your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Maybe they, like, I don't know. Maybe they stole your Xbox and broke in your house, whatever. One person, just one. How can you show that same reconciliation, that same restoration, that same forgiveness, that same love to them? Again, restoration isn't always possible. But no one, if you're in Christ in here, no one should be able to say that you've never tried. I want to close with this uh, passage from Ephesians chapter 4. Just listen to this. This is Paul. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I love that. Are we eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Are we eager to pursue reconciliation with people? Are we eager to see broken relationships restored to the gospel? Are we eager to share the love of Christ with people? If we are, that's evidence that God is working in us. If we aren't, we need to ask the question, are are we genuinely experiencing the gospel in our lives? And if not, then I pray that you do business with God and you, Um, talk to God about that. You talk to a leader here. You talk to me. You talk to a friend, somebody. And share that, that you want to experience that, that you want to see that forgiveness at work in your life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself. Thank you that you've restored the brokenness of our own relationships with you. Thank you that you've now adopted us. You've called us sons and daughters when we were once enemies. And Lord God, I pray for us that this week we would think of one person, just one, that we are holding something against. And Lord God, would you give us a heart to forgive them. And I pray, God, if if there's somebody in here who doesn't know you, that they would see their inability to truly forgive somebody without receiving the forgiveness of your son. And I pray that we would embrace that forgiveness tonight, that we would embrace your gospel, that we would begin to follow you with our lives. And more than that, that we would begin to reflect you and your character to everyone that we interact with. God, I love you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.